Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's show, we're going to be talking with the ACLU's Ian Thompson about federal policy issues, including major pieces of legislation like the Equality Act and efforts to reverse the transgender military ban, as well as smaller administrative changes. Ian Thompson is a legislative representative in the ACLU's Washington, D.C. office. Ian works to advance the organization's civil liberties and civil rights agenda in Congress and the executive branch by focusing on LGBT rights, HIV and AIDS, and sex education. Let's dig in. Hi, Ian. Hi, Eric. It's a pleasure. Let's start at the beginning with the Equality Act. There was a major development on March 13th when the Equality Act was introduced in the House and the Senate with 239 House co-sponsors and 41 Senate co-sponsors. This sweeping bill would add sexual orientation and gender identity to the list of forbidden grounds for discrimination throughout the U.S. Code. So how important is this bill to the LGBT community and what does it do specifically? Sure, uh, absolutely. So the Equality Act would provide um, LGBTQ people with clear, consistent, um, nationwide non-discrimination protections in all of the important areas of daily life, things like employment, housing, um, access to public spaces and services. Um, And uh, it would do that by um, explicitly adding sexual orientation and gender identity into the existing uh, federal civil rights laws, so laws like uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, the Fair Housing Act, uh, the Equal Credit Opportunities Act, etc. Um, and we think that's uh, really important because, um, you know, as I'm sure you certainly are very well aware, the reality for LGBTQ people across the country uh, remains uh, that uh, far too often um, individuals are subjected to discrimination simply because of who they are. Um, And it shouldn't matter whether you live in Massachusetts or Mississippi, um, the protections uh, from discrimination um, should be should be clear and and, and nationwide and and that's why you know we think at the ACLU that this legislation is so important. The other aspect of the Equality Act that I think is um, also really important but doesn't get nearly the same amount of attention is that it would also fill a number of significant existing gaps in our federal civil rights laws. Um, um, you know, so for example. Um, uh, currently, uh, federal civil rights laws uh, prohibit discrimination in places of public service um, and, and also with uh, 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 federal funding. However, those protections um, do not extend to discrimination based on sex. So the Equality Act would, um, would explicitly prohibit sex discrimination in public places and services as well as with federal funding. Um, it would also significantly expand um, what are considered to be public uh, places or services. So um, as a result of that, for the first time under federal law, it would be illegal to discriminate against somebody for, uh, for example, um, shopping while black um, or 
flying while brown. Um, and the reason that that's true is the Equality Act would, um, would prohibit discrimination by uh, retail establishments, including stores and online retailers, as well as in transportation providers. And none of that um, currently exists in federal law, and, and we think that's something that's um, um, a significant omission and something that would be um, corrected by the Equality Act. So I think for all of our listeners, we've been focusing on the Supreme Court grant in the Title VII cases applying to workplace discrimination affecting LGBT people. What would happen if we lose at the Supreme Court? Will the Equality Act uh, begin to address what a loss would mean for the LGBT community? Well, you really, you really hit uh, hit the nail on the head with your question in that, you know, in the event, um, you know, the very unfortunate event of a loss at the Supreme Court, which we definitely hope will will not be the case, and, and we're confident in um, our legal arguments that it won't be. Uh, but in the event of a Supreme Court loss, I think it would really um, serve to heighten the absolute paramount importance of this legislation. Um, you know, uh, stripping away. Um, our existing protections under federal laws um, would really relegate LGBTQ people to second-class status across this country um, in one false swoop, and that's just an unacceptable um, situation. So, you know, the need for for legislation like the Equality Act in the event of a loss at the Supreme Court in those Title VII cases would be um, would be tremendous. Um, you know, in the, uh, the other point that I, is worth mentioning here is that um, the Equality Act really builds on decades of case law and the understanding that discriminating against somebody because of their sexual orientation or gender identity is a form of sex discrimination. The legislation is very clear in, in defining sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination as sex discrimination, really building on um, and clarifying that um, that understanding um, that is already reflected in the law. So, you know, we certainly view the Equality Act right now as, as uh, 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 you know, uh, very complementary to the, to the protections that exist, for example, under Title VII. But in the event of a bad decision from the court in those Title VII cases, um, you know, the need for this legislation um, would be, would be um, you know, so, so important. What is the current status of the bill? So right now we're at uh, 240 co-sponsors in the House, uh, 241 if you include uh, Mr. Cicilline of Rhode Island, who's the lead sponsor, and we're at 46 in the Senate, um, 47 if you include um, Senator Merkley of Oregon, who's the lead um, in the Senate. So, you know, that's really significant support, particularly on the House side. Obviously, if you want to pass legislation off the House floor, the magic number uh, that you need is 218. So, obviously, we are in um, excess of that already. Um, uh, in early April, uh, we had uh, two House hearings in the House Judiciary Committee, as well as the um, House Education and Labor Committee. Uh, and so the next step in the process is going to be uh, a committee vote. Uh, we are expecting a committee vote uh, in the House Judiciary Committee um, in the coming 
uh, weeks, and then from there we'll be heading uh, to the House floor. So, uh, you know, we we are certainly moving moving along um, in a in a good in a good direction, and um, you know, I think we're really uh, we're really pleased with the level of support that the legislation enjoys, not only among uh, members of Congress, but then when you look at um, support um, outside of Congress, we have you know over 320 um, organizations that have um, endorsed the bill. Very strong support um, for the legislation in the business community. Um, just one uh, a little a little statistic uh, about the business support for it. Um, the, the range of companies um, that have endorsed the legislation employ um, over 8.9 million workers throughout the United States and have a combined revenue that exceeds uh, $4 trillion. They have operations in all 50 states. Um, you know, so I, I really think that um, you know that that speaks to the to the breadth of support that's out there um, organizationally in the business community um, and and um, you know I, I think we're in we're in really strong position to be able to have a successful floor vote uh, when this uh, when this gets to the floor uh, in the coming weeks. Okay, so let's talk about the transgender military ban. As we reported in Law Notes on March 28th, 238 members of the House of Representatives approved a resolution that, one, strongly opposed President Trump's discriminatory ban on transgender members of the armed forces, two, rejected the flawed scientific and medical claims upon which it was based, and three, strongly urged that the Department of Defense not reinstate President Trump's ban on transgender military service. So the resolution on its own is symbolic but has no legal force, and sure enough, the ban went into effect. What is the impact of that resolution, and can you tell us a little bit about efforts in the legislative area to undo the transgender military ban? Well, I, I think the most important thing um, about that resolution, and, and we were really uh, uh, pleased um, with the leadership of, of Congressman Kennedy of Massachusetts, who was the lead sponsor of it, and is also the, the chair of the Transgender uh, Equality Task Force in the House of Representatives. Um, I think the most important aspect of that resolution was really putting the House on record in opposition to the Trump administration's discriminatory and unconstitutional um, efforts to, to ban transgender people um, from the military. And, um, you know, obviously having a successful floor vote was great in that it did put the House clearly on record in opposition to the administration's actions. And from there, um, we're now um, looking to be able to move uh, legislation um, in the House um, that would actually um, substantively block uh, the administration from from um, um, further being, you know, being able to further uh, carry out its ban um, reversing um, their actions. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, particularly as we look towards movement um, later this spring on the Defense Authorization Bill, also known um, as the NDAA, uh, once, uh, once that gets moving, um, I suspect that as part of that process, um, we will see an effort to, um, like I said, substantively block the administration's um, ban. And what has been the impact of the transgender military ban on the transgender community? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and really, even before doing that, we have to, you know, it's worth remembering um, why we even have this ban, right? Uh, This came about um, as so many of this administration's awful policies um, have as part of um, an early morning um, tweet storm um, on the part of the president um, without really any substantive input from experts, uh, even from um, you know, leaders um, within the military itself. Um, so there simply was no, you know, real rational basis behind it other than, um, you know, a, simply a morning tweet storm on the part of the president. And, you know, as a result of that, the lives of transgender service members um, and transgender people wishing to join uh, the armed, armed forces have been um, completely thrown uh, through for a tailspin, um, and you know, people's um, you know, people's lives are are being turned upside down here as a result as a result of this policy that is just you know fueled from you know just naked discrimination, clearly unconstitutional, and so we really think um, it is important to challenge. Uh, this ban and the rationale for it on all fronts um, in the court of public opinion, in courts themselves, and, of course, obviously in Congress. Um, and that is something that, you know, obviously the ACLU and, and, and many of our partner organizations are actively um, engaging in right now. So let's talk about some agency action. The Trump administration has been waging a war through the agencies against LGBT people from day one when they rescinded important guidance that would allow transgender students to use the bathroom that's consistent with their gender identity in public schools. Let's talk about um, an area where the Trump administration granted South Carolina's request for an exemption to a federal rule barring discrimination in federally funded child welfare programs. This exception allowed child welfare agencies in the state to turn away would-be foster and adoptive parents because they don't share the agency's religious belief. Why is this so dangerous, and is Trump blowing up the administrative protections we achieved under the Obama administration? Yeah, absolutely. So this really goes to the point, uh, to the core point, that um, agencies that uh, are carrying out government functions should not be able to use taxpayer dollars to discriminate. And what the administration did um, in, the, in the example um, that, that, you, that you referenced, Eric, was um, there, are, uh, there was a child welfare uh, agency in the state of South Carolina um, that uh, was uh, receiving federal funds um, to find stable and loving homes for children in the child welfare system. Um, and of course, you know, these children are in the system because they've been removed from their homes either because of abuse or neglect at home. And, um, you know, we think the only um, factor that should come into play when finding um, these children homes is what is in their best interest, plain and simple. Uh, but uh, this particular agency, um, in in South Carolina would only place uh, children um, um, in in families that match their particular Christian um, religious beliefs. 
this policy uh, was um, in violation of this federal regulation that prohibits that kind of discrimination. And so um, South Carolina, acting on the agency's behalf and, and in support of the agency, um, asked the Trump administration for a waiver from this non-discrimination requirement, arguing that um, it should be granted um, uh, because of the uh, Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And earlier uh, this year, the uh, Trump um, Department of Health and Human Services agreed with the state of South Carolina and granted that waiver from uh, from um, from you know the, the non-discrimination requirements of the regulation. And as a result of that, now this agency and child welfare agencies throughout the state of South Carolina are empowered to uh, turn away prospective uh, foster or adoptive uh, parents simply because they are, quote-unquote, the wrong religion. And, you know, we think that that is just fundamentally unacceptable to engage in that kind of taxpayer-funded discrimination that clearly harms um, these individuals who are wishing to open up their homes to these very vulnerable children. But, you know, even more importantly, it harms the children who are in the system because, um, you know, families that they could be placed with are being turned away. And as a result, you know, they're forced to languish in this child welfare system for longer um, be- because of that uh, uh, discrimination. And the the, the danger um, that we see now, as if all of this wasn't bad enough, is, you know, will we have efforts to even take this kind of discrimination to other states, really turning, um, you know, kind of the fundamental purpose of the child welfare system, which is to operate in the best interest of some of the most vulnerable children in the country, are they going to turn that on its head to uh, enable this kind of discrimination? Let's talk about the president and HIV AIDS. We had on Lambda Legal Scott Chavez on a previous podcast to talk about the president and the resignation of the members of the president's advisory council on HIV AIDS. Um, at the beginning of of the Trump administration. And recently, HHS announced additional funding for HIV-AIDS programming, but then the president's budget also cuts other important funding for HIV programs, including Medicaid, among other things. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the president's record on HIV-AIDS? Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think the Trump administration's record in this area, like um, like so many others, is really is really quite abysmal. Um, you know, I think it it uh, you really can't adequately claim that you are taking seriously, um, um, you know, the HIV um, epidemic when you are unwilling to name those individuals and those communities that are most impacted by HIV. And that is something that we have consistently seen from the very earliest days of this administration, a refusal to specifically lift up, um, you know, the the LGBTQ community um, and and the ways in which, um, you know, our community has been has been impacted by HIV and AIDS um, over the years. So when you refuse to do that, it's kind of a baseline. I have to say that, you know, I'm going to take with a grain of salt really everything that you say 
um, after that. But then, you know, you look at the ways in which this administration has repeatedly, um, you know, tried to undermine the ability of people to get um, the, the necessary health care and to be able to afford it. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, people um, living with and, and, and most vulnerable to HIV um, are, 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 are the ones who, who, who suffer the most from those kind of, um, you know, those kind of assaults. And then, you know, also we saw, we saw stories at the height of the, uh, of the family separation policies uh, that, you know, the administration was actually taking funding away from other programs, including those for individuals um, um, living with HIV to be able to fund this other, you know, horrific policy. So um, I, I think I think that their their actions here have been have been, you know, uh, uh, you know, really woefully inadequate. Um, and 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 um, you know, I I don't sadly expect to see that change um, anytime soon. There are important non-discrimination protections in Obamacare, um, and the Trump administration seems hell-bent on rolling them back. Can you talk a little bit about those protections and what the Trump administration is trying to do that would undermine these important non-discrimination rules that are in place? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, towards the end of the Obama administration, they issued um, a really important regulation implementing the the health care rights aspect of the Affordable Care Act um, and more wonkily if that's the word known as uh, section 1557 and um, among you know many uh, other important aspects of that uh, civil rights uh, statute it, it prohibited for the first time under federal law sex discrimination in the context of health care and in their implementing regulation uh, for this law, the Obama administration made clear that um, discriminating against somebody because of their gender identity or their transgender status was a clear violation of this um, uh, civil rights law. Um, and that was, you know, so tremendously important, particularly to the trans um, and non-binary uh, community. Um, uh, you know, these are really life-saving protections, and um, from their earliest days, the Trump administration has just shown a complete disdain for for uh, for these um, important protections. Um, you know, they are uh, supposed to be enforced uh, by the Civil Rights Office at, at HHS, which is now headed by an individual named Roger Severino who is probably one of the most dogged opponents of LGBTQ people within the Trump administration. Um, and so it should come as no surprise that uh, we are expecting in the very near future, maybe even a matter of a few days at this point, for the Trump administration to propose their own uh, regulation to essentially undo all of these um, critical life-saving protections um, under uh, the Affordable Care Act, and um, you know that's something that uh, that that we at the ACLU and I'm sure many other organizations are going to vigorously oppose. Fortunately, it's not just something that the administration can do uh, just kind of the, with the snap of a finger. They are going to have to go through a 
uh, a formal rulemaking process here, so they will have to provide an opportunity for public comment and input before finalizing what is surely going to be a very uh, harmful and discriminatory rule. And, uh, you know, should they move forward and go down that road, which I fully expect that they will, um, you know, the ACLU and I'm sure many other organizations won't hesitate uh, to challenge them in court. All right, so the question that comes to my mind is um, the administration recently agreed with a court in Texas that the entire Affordable Care Act must fall because it's unconstitutional. What's the plan if the um, courts ultimately strike down Obamacare? Um, Is there a legislative plan in place, and just how devastating would that be? Well, you know, I I think really that particular case um, really speaks to how important um, the courts um, are, how important uh, federal judges uh, can be and kind of the role that they they can play. And obviously, uh, you know, that is an area where we have seen um, what will will certainly be probably some of the Trump administration's most uh, long-lasting um, harm, right, in terms of the ways in which they've been able to shift the balance of, of federal courts so that, you know, decisions like that um, are, 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 are more likely and, and certainly possible. So, um, you know, that's, that's one piece of it. As for that particular decision itself, you know, obviously that was just the decision of one uh, federal uh, district court judge. So, you know, we've got a long ways to go before um, you know, that would be, um, you know, kind of acted upon in a real way, but certainly um, a, a scary development and one that, uh, you know, uh, many organizations are going to be engaging closely on in the weeks and months uh, and probably years, really, with that case to come. So we all know that the Supreme Court is super important to literally all of the policies that we're talking about right now, from the Title VII cases that they're getting ready to hear to the Obamacare case that they could eventually hear. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. Have you heard anything um, from members of Congress or does the ACLU have a position on expanding the Supreme Court? As folks will know, um, the Constitution establishes that there shall be a Supreme Court, but it does not define the size of the Supreme Court. What have you heard legislatively in this area on efforts to curb the damage that Trump has done to the Supreme Court, starting with stealing the seat that was Obama's to a point? Well, that's not something that the ACLU um, is is engaging on, um, at least at this uh, at this time. Um, but um, you know, I, I you know, obviously, as uh, as the um, administration um, has succeeded in, in shifting the balance of the courts, and as the you know, particular you know, the Senate itself has. Has um, has really made it easier to, um, you know, kind of stack the courts um, to the benefit of the Trump administration. You know, I, as you really touched on, Eric, we've we've definitely seen, um, um, you know, kind of growing calls for um, pretty significant transformations uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, kind of the the makeup of the federal judiciary and how we go about. Um, um, you know, selecting and, and, and getting judges 
um, confirmed. Um, and, and I'm sure that this is something that's going to play out throughout the, the, the 2020 campaign, and it'll be really interesting, particularly now that we're, um, you know, coming into, um, uh, you know, in a real way, the, 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 the primary process for, for Democratic um, uh, presidential prospects to see, you know, how these issues about the courts and the federal judiciary, um, you know, kind of come up in the context of, of, um, of those debates. And finally, do you have any advice for folks who may be listening on the phone of what they can do to get involved to make sure that they're pushing forward some of these policy prescriptions that we've laid out here? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I would say particularly for those um, listeners who are represented in Congress um, by um, Republican uh, members um, to to make sure that uh, they are, uh, are hearing from folks back in their districts about how important the Equality Act is and why its protections are so essential. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm very hopeful that when that legislation comes to the, to the House floor that we'll see, um, um, you know, a really strong um, bipartisan show of support for the legislation. We've already got, you know, very strong support, um, obviously, on the Democratic uh, side of the aisle. Um, there is there is Republican support for the legislation. It is growing. Um, hopefully, you know, for example, the support in the business community um, aids in that effort as well. But, um, you know, like I said, particularly for those of you who are represented by Republicans, definitely uh, make sure they know um, how important the legislation is. And and uh, renew your your ACLU card. <laughs> That's always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this whole host of um, legislative issues. Are there any topics that are just so pressing that you feel like we've left off the list here? There's so much we could talk about. Yeah, you really covered uh, covered the waterfront, Eric. But it's been a real pleasure <laughs> to be on with you, and I'm happy to do it anytime. And thank you so much for listening. This and future podcasts can be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. We'll be back with more important legal news later.